You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2017 film Battleship Island. So, this is a film from South Korea, and it tells the true story of Hishima Island. Now, Hishima Island was an island off... The coast of Nagasaki, yeah, and it was a mining. It was for coal mining, and it dates back to the 1890s. That's, I believe, what was first yes. constructed. Yes. but this film takes place particularly during World War II, because during World War II, ja- the Japanese military um, used forced labor from Korean citizens to go through there, and it was notoriously uh, dangerously unsafe conditions. Mil- the people in charge of the um, Monicap treated the prisoners horribly, and so this tells the story of this. Now, it's fictional. There's None of the main characters in this movie have any real-life basis. They're not based on real-life people, but it is focusing on an event that did happen, even though a lot of it was fictional. Right. It's an entirely fictional cast of characters, as far as I can tell, Uh, and it is is based, uh, like you said, on on the fact that at Hashima Island, um, the Japanese did use uh, Koreans and others from other parts of the empire um, uh, were moved there, Chinese in particular, to uh, mine coal, sometimes uh, many thousands of feet underground. Uh, that's all entirely accurately portrayed, as well as the working conditions. And what's kind of interesting about the place is because it was a facility that uh, predated the war, um, it it was in fact a very kind of uh, highly populated, densely populated, built up, um, almost self sustaining town, if you will, a mining town. And I remember when I was <laughs> first watching the film, and uh, uh, the main character and his daughter, as well as other Koreans. Uh, uh, having been bamboozled to go to this island uh, by a police chief in Korea uh, in, in Seoul. Who's, yes, they're who's, consistently sold a lie that if they work there for roughly yes. a year, yeah. they'll have enough money to get a house. Yeah, that's accurately portrayed, too, because there were people, uh, Koreans, that cor- collaborated with the Japanese ba- basically for kickbacks to uh, 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 fool these people, give them paperwork that allegedly gave them permission, and they were promised wages and pensions, and it's all very well uh, portrayed in the film, uh, the extent to which the Japanese went, but also their collaborators went uh, in in doing this. Um, But the thing that really impressed me, I I know I was kind of off on a tangent there, but um, the thing that really impressed me with it, with it is uh, after I after I watched the film or started to watch it and then look kind of looked back into it, um, 
there's enough photographic evidence of, of the physical structure of this place. And the, the producer and director of this film painstakingly recreated um, the living quarters in particular, but not just the living quarters, but the mines. But there's this great scene where they're, they're all being hustled off of this ferry that they've just arrived at, and they're realizing, oh, boy, this isn't what we were promised. And they're showing them going up these zigzagging stairs in this highly, highly congested uh, kind of apartment complex, if you will, more of a slum than anything else. And uh, there's a photograph uh, from probably the pre-war period. I'm not sure, but it shows that exact structure. And you can just tell he did a lot of research um, in making this film and, and recreating the island because there's also aerial views of the island. And mm-hmm. you're, you're watching this film and you're thinking, ah, oh, this is this is just you know, a, a fictional place that and it's made to look very grim and so forth. But he's he's got he's got the proportions down, all the buildings down. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And what you know, it's interesting because when I was doing research for this, I was saying to myself, this I, I've never seen this movie before until we watched it. But I remember hearing about this island somewhere, and I was saying, where have I heard about this before? And I looked it up, and this this island, which is still active today, I mean, there's, it's no longer a mining, but it's now a yeah. tourist attraction. Yes. But it was used roughly a decade ago with the James Bond movie Skyfall. And if you're familiar, there's this one, it doesn't take, they don't describe it as that island. It's supposed to be this fictional island off the coast of Macau, I think. But in that movie, he goes to this Bond villain. He's got this hideout on this island. But I remember looking, I was like, that's an re- interesting place. Is this place real? And I looked it up, and I read about the history. And this was before, and Skyfall came out five years before this came out. So I, this didn't come out when I watched it. So yeah. I looked at it, and I kind of forgot about the island. And then it, watching this again jogged my memory. I was like, that's the island they used in Skyfall. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, there's a whole interesting story. I know. I know we're kind of going off the tangent here um, but there is a whole interesting story of the history of this uh this island and and it's 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 availability for use like that and tourism as you said um there is there was a long running uh and not surprising animosity between korea both koreas and japan over the status of this thing because at some point i forget exactly when japan uh was basically um petitioning unesco to make this place a world heritage site and uh one of the conditions that unesco and and other agencies um uh, told them they had to satisfy in order to be named a world heritage site was to basically admit what had happened there during world war ii and uh the story is uh, infuriating to listen to or to read about. Um, they said, yes, they would. And then uh, after the fact, um, they they kind of took it back. They, they said, you know, it really wasn't slave labor. It wasn't forced labor. Um, but we did bring the Koreans, and they did work under harsh conditions. And uh, uh, there was justifiable outrage at that. Um, still, uh, it's a tourist trap, and still it's made available oh. for Hollywood and other filmmakers. But that it's just more evidence of that long-running... We don't hear too much about it in the West, but it's a big deal in Asia. That ro- long-running animosity, distrust, 
and feeling as if the Japanese have really not paid fair recompense for what they did during World War II. Yes, because I wanted to get to that because one of the things I I knew that Japan occupied Korea, but what I didn't realize until reading that it lasted for 35 years. Oh, yeah. Because I just assumed they occupied around the same time they started occupying places in China like Nanking, but it goes back even farther. Yeah, farther. 1910. And uh, there was the agreement of 1910. I mean, if you read the the language in that agreement, it it basically, the Koreans were were forced to give over their entire sovereignty to Japan. Uh, and y- you see, you see uh, language basically saying that the king will give that over to the emperor, and then another paragraph says the emperor accepts this gracious offer and will uh, reign as a sovereign over Korea. And it's it, it just, it just, I can imagine if you're Korean, it just makes your blood boil because of what they did, um, uh, not only during the war but before. Um, they regularly made of Koreans slave labor, and they regularly moved them to the mainland of Japan to do work, most of the time in coal mines, which is the most, probably the most dangerous profession in the world outside of military, I would say. It's, it's very dangerous. He, he portrays it quite well in the, in the film. Uh, coal mines are notorious for... Uh, uh, methane gas leakage and so forth, and explosions, and, 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 and you also have to worry about black lung disease. Black lung disease, you bet. And and uh, the the other most common use for Koreans was uh, 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 Korean women were used for comfort women, which is a euphemism for basically uh, allowing them to be raped by Japanese. And uh, again, there is a long simmering. Uh, 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 justifiable moral outrage and resentment on the part of the Koreans for the Japanese, again, downplaying the fact that yes. they did that. And what's also not quite as well known is that during, and this is intimated in the film, but during during that war, uh, as food shortages grew acute in Japan, uh, they, uh, they basically expropriated uh, most, if not all, of the rice crops from Korea and uh, sent them to Japan, especially 44, 45. And uh, uh, if the war had not stopped when it did, uh, uh, famine would have occurred not only in Japan, but uh, also in Korea. Um, and that's the that's the way they treated Korea. They called it a protectorate, but it was essentially uh, a, a, a most vile form of imperialism. I think one of the things this movie touches on is how you mentioned even to this day, Japan has always has trouble owning up to the atrocities they committed during World War II. We've mentioned all the stuff they've done to Korea, but. Also, what they did to the Chinese, particularly the rape of Nanking, and yep. also what they did to American and British POWs, particularly the Bataan Death March. And it, it's frustrating because when, because of what happened at Hiroshima and at Nagasaki, there's always this feeling of feel bad they, for us. Like one movie I watched, an animated film called In This Corner of the World, about this little gir- this girl who grows up during J- in Japan during World War II. 
and it's after they've surrendered, and she said something along the lines of, I don't like us submitting to violence. Mm-hmm. And that just infuriated me, because do you know what the horrible things your country has done during this yes. time? Yes, and uh, it, it's a bit unfortunate that the, the, the debate over the moral status of the use of the atomic bombs has focused a lot of the attention, I, I would say, on problematic moral aspect of uh, targeting non-combatants in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that should be discussed. There is no doubt about it. It should be discussed. Um, but it does underplay, I think, tremendously the fact that Imperial Japan targeted non-combatants on a consistent basis in China and other parts of Asia since 1931 and in Korea since 1910. And you have, I think, to have a realistic assessment of uh, uh, the morality of how World War II ended. I think you have to take into account that fact and the fact that I didn't know we were going to get into this discussion, but and the fact that there were simply no morally clean uh, or uh, non-messy ways to end that war uh, at that time. Um, invasion would have in, in, uh, cost probably many more lives than did the, the uh, two bombings. Uh, blockade, which was actually the um, uh, favored uh, uh, strategy of the U.S. Navy at the end of the war, would have ended up, because of that food famine situation I was discussing, uh, starving millions of people, not only in Japan, but in Asia as well. Um, conventional bombing, if it had continued, would have uh, resulted in in uh, the kind of uh, destruction and carnage that we saw in the Tokyo fire bombings toward the end of the war, uh, March of '45. And allowing Russia to invade has costs as well, um, if they had made it onto uh, Japan proper. Um, no easy answers to that question. And I think what's interesting about this film and, and what's interesting about uh, some uh, uh, interviews I've read or heard uh, of people uh, who Chinese or Koreans or, or people in Indochina that have talked about that period is uh, they uh, tend to be very thankful that the war ended when it did. And they have a much more, what's the word I'm thinking of, uh, a, a kind of a realistic view of uh, the, the, the method that was used given the extremity of the circumstance at that time. I think one of the things that's remarkable uh, about the level of luck, you might say, that there was in the war ending when it did is the the uh, uh, it what it did allow for an aversion of I think it would have been a catastrophic famine on in Japan and what uh, to his credit, uh, General MacArthur did an amazing logistical job 
in getting enough rice and other foodstuffs into Japan to avert catastrophe in 46. Because even though we had won the war, uh, the situation still remained. Um, they had they had uh, a severe food shortage, at least for the civilians. They had stockpiled some for combatants, but uh, uh, there wasn't enough to go around. And he he did a heck of a job, uh, kind of lobbying the world. And uh, Truman did this as well, uh, lobbying the world to help us f- feed that population. Again, not only in Japan, but in those areas of the Asia that were decimated by Japan uh, and the war, China in particular. Um, It's a good thing the war stopped when it did, because if it had not, uh, that famine would have occurred. And we talk about, um, because Japan not owning up, and this, not surprisingly, in some right-wing Japanese publications, they were criticizing the film as anti-Japanese or racist towards Japanese people. But if you read about even the reception, even in some of in Korea, like there wasn't even that unanimous praise in Korea. Some felt that it was nationalistic, mm-hmm. it was patriotic propaganda. And what's also interesting, on the other side, people said the film wasn't harsh enough on the Japanese, which that makes no sense to me because this film betrays the officials and everybody is pretty awful human yeah, beings. There's yes. no, like, not even, like, one good person. In no, this. there's no redeeming character on the Japanese side in this one. And, uh, yeah, I think it does a, a, a good job of portraying the cynicism with which they manipulated the Koreans. Uh, but also the cynicism, and maybe this is part of the problem, I don't know, but the cynicism with which certain Koreans collaborated with them. The most infuriating character is Yoon Hak Chu, who is supposed to be um, this uh, leader of the Korean resistance, right? And we see this uh, young man uh, training with the OSS to go into this camp. They figured out he's, he's on Hashima Island, go in and rescue him. And it turns out he discovers this guy is in cahoots with the Japanese and uh, uh, there's that, I think, great kind of penultimate scene. It's still re- relatively early in the film, actually, mm-hmm. uh, where he confronts him with this. And uh, I don't see that as overly patriotic. I think that I, I see that as a portrayal of uh, what often happened in uh, Japanese-occupied uh, territories. They would... Uh, uh, be in cahoots with people that were local uh, power brokers, uh, basically, and, and those those people compromised their integrity to uh, send their fellow Koreans uh, into essentially slave labor and death in these uh, coal mines. Uh, so that that's accurate. There, there's nothing historically inaccurate there. If it's patriotic to show this young man dressing this man down and eventually uh, killing him. Um, yeah, I guess it is patriotic, but I, I just don't see the problem with yeah. that, I guess. Well, well, another criticism some people have, and this one I kind of agree with, mm-hmm. is the ending. Because it, it turns into this giant 
big epic grand scale battle between the Koreans. Yeah, they're yeah. fighting the Japanese. There's a big shootout. Oh my goodness! And there's even there. I could even see the it has the Saving Private Ryan cliche where the sounds going out. Yes, uh, it's the Street Fighter guy, and he takes out this one guy who's always been antagonizing him and the sound's going out then he kills him and then the sound comes back to normal yeah, yeah. and it, but it gets it gets on this huge scale there's explosions there's a big shootout and hand and a number of people are able to escape off the island and get off the boat and right as they're going off the coast because this is nagasaki yep they see the atom bomb being dropped so they just escaped yes and I was looking. I had a feeling, like you know what? I'm not. That's a little bit too sensationalistic. I don't think that happened. Let me check, and it didn't happen. Oh yeah, N- none of this happened. None no of big this grand happened. epic. Now, ha- having said that, I mean, and I-, I knew when I was watching this, this ain't history. Yeah. At this point, this ain't history. I kind of knew it wouldn't be history because of the cast of characters. There, there are no real people here. So, just the action adventure movie. Uh, fan in me i actually liked the ending it, it wasn't was bad it was, but it was it got a little bit too okay like this is i'm not i'm no history expert but this does seem a oh, little yeah. bit over the top yeah it, it was certainly over especially the top. They, they just escaped the atom bomb being yeah dropped. yeah they see it off in the distance yeah they see it off in the distance and um I actually, I actually liked the end it, of the movie. It, it's, it reminds me a bit of how Tarantino does his movies yes. with mainly yeah. Inglorious Bastards. Yes. Which, spoiler alert, if you've never seen that movie, but in the end, this Jewish um, unit of soldiers able to assassinate Adolf Hitler and yeah. kill him in 1944. We know that didn't happen. Yeah. But even in his most recent movie, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. In that movie, the Manson cult picks the wrong house, and they get all killed. Sharon Tate and her family survives. Yeah, yeah. And these are, to use a term I see you have in the script here, it's uh, a term. Yeah, it's a term borrowed from historians. It's revisionism. Well, Hollywood necessarily is always revisionistic because you're trying to make a two-hour story out of real Mm -hmm. history. Um, So, yeah, that came to mind. Even before I read your script, I was thinking, oh, this is like Inglorious Bastards. They are, uh, uh, interestingly, taking a horrible period in history. Uh, And it's uh, a case like Inglorious Bastards where the victims, the people that have survived this, are are made into people um, that get a level of revenge on um, the oppressors, right? And something like that is happening here in this film with the Koreans. And what I found very intriguing about it is, especially in the first 20 or 30 minutes maybe, um, basically before they get to the island, but even at points when they're on the island, there are just elements of this film that are kind of black comedy. That's actually not a surprise because the director is Ryu Sung Wong. Now, this is only the first film of his I've seen, but looking back, he's worked a number of times with uh, Chan Wook Park, who's did the most famously Old Boy, which was remade here like 10 years ago. But mm-hmm. his films are known for dark comedy. Yeah. If, you, if you watch um, Bong Joon Ho's Friends with Chan Wook Park, and he did Parasite, which won Best Picture a couple of years ago. His films are filled with dark comedy. So yeah. dark comedy is kind of big in South Korea. Yeah, it seems like a Korean uh, staple, so to speak. Yeah. But I just found myself laughing at parts when they would do. There was a lot. There was a lot of slapstick comedy in this film. Slapstick between Lee Kang Ok and So Hee, his his daughter. I mean, she's kind of slapping him around a couple of times. <laughs> and, Why did you leave me? And it, it, 
found myself laughing, even though uh, it's horrible circumstance occurs. She gives him, at the beginning of the film, this guy's a survivor, by the way. He does whatever he needs to survive. If you asked him what his mission in life was, it was to make sure he and his daughter survive. And that's the you know the guiding thread through the entire story and it's it, it's sad at the end he ends up dying and we see her as the future of korea looking on as uh-huh. they, they look at that the bomb just having been dropped that's powerful but at the beginning their relationship is hilarious because he is uh, a band leader and she sings with the band and they're in seoul and it's uh, japanese occupied seoul so um he's kissing up to somebody there this this woman and you know she's uh uh, there's a room full of people that are about to go to japan having been recruited under false pretenses right so Mm -hmm. she says you need to make this music happy right and he's kind of kissing up to her because it's his way of you know surviving under difficult circumstances and off in the distant of distance of the shot you see his daughter just kind of smirking and looking at him and going, I can't believe he's doing this, mm-hmm. right? It's just great. And and they have that relationship all the way through the movie because they're separated uh, uh, several times. And he finds a way to through machinations to get her back so that they can play for the Japanese. And um, every once in a while, they, they're still split up. And whenever they're reunited again, she kind of takes it to him. Why mm-hmm. did you leave me? And I, mm-hmm. I just love the, the the relationship between those two. Yeah, and getting back to that ending, um, I think some people criticized the sensationalistic or the revisionist is that the what happened in reality was much more dark. Yeah, because they, nobody escaped the bombing because the bombing happened in Nagasaki. They forced them to go into that city and do the cleanup, and many of those people who were forced to do that suffered radiation sickness. Yeah, that's right. And again, could be grounds for uh, even saying that uh, the producer-director here was kind of whitewashing the true horrific nature of the crimes. Um, and, and there's there's a that's a relevant point, uh, but. I mean, it's it, you have to consider it as being counterbalanced against against that patriotic urge. The, the, I think the Koreans not only want to uh, give themselves some um, comforting mythology that they were able to resist uh, through films like this, but it, it's it's just that desire that for counterfactual revenge. I think I think they want to have that as well and you know he is he's a movie director i don't know his corpus but um it it tends to be more you know kind of action adventure oriented so he'd probably say my intent was not to create a terribly uh, uh depressing and tragic film i i did want to portray the reality but at the same time give it a positive ending for us Yeah, because another one of similar film like this that focuses on japanese atrocities was city of life and death that's a chinese film about the rape of nanking and that film it's black and white it's very bleak and there is no revisionist happy ending yeah and that is uh again i would say documentation that needs to occur because, uh, you know, in, if you think in, in terms of how 
information about historical events gets into the popular culture. It's uh, basically through writing, writings, and stories. And for most people, stories mean television and film. And I think the Chinese uh, are more than excused for creating those kinds of films because of what happened there. Uh, by the end of the war, at least 20 million non-combatants dead. So that needed to be done. And it's interesting because we were talking about this earlier, how it's become the, the UNESCO World Heritage Site. And I mentioned that they used it for some scenes in Skyfall. You wonder, it's considering all the horrible things that happened there, should that be used for something, you know, like you're, you're putting this in a Bond movie? Yeah. But it reminds me, I mean, I guess the similarities you could use would be for Auschwitz, you yeah. know, where people, if you go there, you know. Yeah, it seems out of place. I mean, the, the parallel I would have drawn would have been if Tarantino decided to uh, go film parts of Inglorious Bastards at Auschwitz, you know, putting a kind of a black comedy there, it's probably not appropriate. And maybe that's part of the criticism of this film because it is kind of a black comedy, at least at the beginning and peppered all throughout. Maybe there's some Koreans who just think that's in bad taste. Yeah. And you actually bring up Auschwitz and I don't know if exact, I don't think they shot it exactly there, but if I could think of something big budget blockbusters, it would be the X-Men movie, which is particularly the background of Magneto who, survived Auschwitz as a kid and that's how he sort of had this hatred of humans. Yeah. And I I don't I, it's been a while since I've seen them but the I think it was Apocalypse one of the ones that came out 5 years ago one of the villains takes Magneto back to Auschwitz to remind him. Now I don't know if they shot it there but yeah. they're still using it and you're thinking you're using Auschwitz in a superhero movie? Yeah. Like there's some like maybe that's maybe is that in bad taste? It, it could be. Yeah. And you know they didn't use obviously they didn't use the real battleship island for this film, I'm sure Japan would have refused permission. Uh, but uh, they used a very uh, meticulously uh, reconstructed set, right? And that raises, it, it would still raise the same question because it is so close to the original. It's amazing how he did that, by the way. Mm-hmm. Just incredible. Um, yeah, those are tricky questions uh, kind of in the ethics of filmmaking there for sure that you have to you have to consider uh, anytime you depart from fact and do want to create one of these kind of revisionist kind of revenge films, especially if you've got a little comedic tone to it, like you do with this film and also with Tarantino with, with that, uh, with Inglorious Bastards, there will be some people that will say, you know, you're, you're taking history a little too light there. Um, Still, it gets the information out there, so to speak. And the the positive thing I think it does is, uh, especially as we get farther and farther away from these events and the the generation that actually lived through it die, uh, you get people, uh, you give them some exposure to this history. And you kind of hope that what they will do is explore it on their own. Go read some books about Mm -hmm. the actual events. Um, so I guess kind of in that kind of utilitarian way of thinking of it, uh, keeping that information alive, I think it's important for that reason. And I tend to give them a pass myself. As in as, as a revisionist ending is the ending we would have wanted to see. Yeah. We want to see 
justice being made against these guys and some people being able to escape this horrible situation. Yeah, and, and you know, there is another aspect of the film I think it's interesting. It, it, it has a positive message in that uh, it illustrates something that does also occur in history. Interestingly enough, any time there's a, a extreme adversity and uh, groups of human beings have to deal with that adversity, you you see them moving away from filtering all of their decisions through essentially the question, what's what's in it for me, what's good for me, what's good maybe for my immediate family? And they start thinking about uh, the good of that larger group that they are thrown into this adversity with. And you you kind of see that arc of development um, in the main character in this film. You'll notice that um, uh, more than once he asks, look, I'll, I'll do whatever you need me to do. I'll get you the keys. I'll get you into the telegraph office, whatever, um, if you get me and my daughter out of here. But there's a, a crucial scene toward the end of the film where he says, I don't care about myself anymore. Just get my daughter out of here, right? So he stopped thinking of self at that point. But also, he and his daughter and other Koreans find a way to get this large piece of uh, scaffolding up mm -hmm. on the t to the top of the wall so that all of the Koreans can escape. They have stopped thinking about themselves at all. It is now about getting these people out of this horrible circumstance and they're fighting, risking their lives and not caring about um, self anymore. Um, that's something that tends to happen with human beings in adversity. And it's interesting. I think it's kind of hardwired into us. And then once the adversity passes, people tend to go, go <laughs> move back to the, the more kind of self-centered way of being. Um, but I think it's illustrated well in this film. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.